On this episode of Year One, we speak to Christopher, serial entrepreneur, founder, and CEO of Green Apple Gives, a fundraising platform for organizations of all shapes and sizes. Chris provides valuable insights into asking for help, the power of a network, and paying it forward. Chris is all about giving back, and what he gives us on this episode is priceless. Sit back, buckle up, and enjoy the show. Welcome to Year One, hosted by me, Dio Klopis, and my good friend, Satish Bala. On Year One, we speak to early-stage founders, business owners, and entrepreneurs about the highs and lows of the early years, the challenges and rewards, and everything else in between. So, without any further ado, let's get into this week's conversation. Chris, so we started our podcast with the same question for all our founders, and that is, what was that pivotal moment? What was that click? What, what, what happened in your life that you actually said, you know what, I'm not going to go down the traditional route and go work for a boss. I'm going to carve my own path. What was that for you? So that happened in high school. I had wanted to be a doctor. And since being a kid, really, I'd wanted to be a doctor. And all through high school, I'm taking all of the maths and the sciences, the biologies and the physics and the chemistry and all that kind of stuff getting ready to go off to university. Of course, this is back in the day when there was some grade 13, right? Not just, you know, the kids today don't. It was a grade 13. There was a grade 13. <laughs> Lucky uh, them. And then I said, so I wanted to be a doctor, but I didn't just want to be like a GP. I wanted to be a specialty, probably on some kind of surgery. And then I started, then as, as I got through towards the end of high school and through into grade 13, and sort of coming time, you start to apply to universities. Um, I was like, whoa. Wait a minute, it's two years of pre-med, four years of med, then one to two years of internship. And then I have to spend another four to seven years to specialize. Like I gotta, I'm going to be in school and interning for the next 12 plus years. Screw that. <laughs> I'm not doing that. Suddenly it was like, I'm going to be in my thirties before, before I'm actually the type of doctor I want to be. And I'm like. I, I, I don't have the patience to do, to do that. Um, and then my whole life got turned upside down. I got, um, I got into some trouble as a teenager and, um, and that interrupted some things. Um, and then, um, and then right after sort of that was sort of dealt with and I'd graduated high school and, um, and I got into a car accident and broke my neck. Mm. And, um, so then I was laid up for a number of months and that sort of, that just really kind of changed the trajectory of my life a little bit. Um, because now everybody that I was in school with was now off at college and university and I'm, you know, recovering at home with a broken neck and a halo and they had to do surgery and take bone out of my hip to replace one of my vertebrae to do a spinal fusion and blah, blah, blah. It's so then when that all sort of got done then i was like well i guess i'm gonna have to work for a bit and then i so then i i was i was i was very interested in cars in the car industry at that point so i sold cars at a dealership in hamilton royal lake fort that doesn't even exist anymore and um and then i was like well why didn't i just go then so then i went to i took that passion and that interest and i stopped selling cars and i went to school at uh georgian college for their the uh their automotive business school and so but back to sort of the entrepreneurial spirit that was in me from the time I was like six and I was setting up a lemonade stand on Brad street in Burlington outside our house. Um, 
my friend and I, we, I decided to, to start a business. And uh, so I, I quit college. It was a three-year course. And after two years, I, I left and we started our first business. That's amazing. Which business and, is that? So that was Home Services Management Court. So the business was, we knew that we had a friend that had a company that looked after vacant homes after banks had repossessed houses. And we we're like, he's doing very well. and He's not the brightest bulb. So how hard can this be? If he can be successful at this, surely we can. And then I knew from my, my landlord. So I ended up, I was renting a room at a guy's house when I was at college for those two years. He was a real estate agent. And he let me know that Royal LePage Relocation had this big division. Like Royal LePage had a division called Royal LePage Relocation. And if you had to move like from Toronto to Vancouver, because you were being moved in your job, because you worked at IBM or something, right? Um, then they guaranteed to be able to sell your house here and buy your house there. And if you had to relocate before your home sold, they would buy it from you at a pre at a preset market price. So they wouldn't interrupt your, your move for your job. So they had all these vacant homes they were sitting on that needed, needed attention. So we, I ended up walking in and pitching them on the idea that instead of getting the agents wherever to, to find people to look after these homes, they needed to be cleaned on the grass cut and the snow shovel and the pools cleaned and all that kind of stuff. Locks changed, that kind of stuff. Um, we'll do it all. And so we got this contract from them and we started managing that over the course of uh, most of a year. And then uh, we, it was all in a handshake. It was literally on a handshake deal with, with, a, with a, a, like a VP at Royal LePage. And we went back at the end of that year and said, okay, let's, in my head, I was like, okay, this has worked out really well for them. I think they should be pretty happy. And um, let's, get a, let's, let's get like a three-year contract on the table. And we walked in and they're like, yeah, you've done a really good job. You've really opened our eyes to centralizing the management of this stuff. And um, thanks, but we don't need you anymore. We've, we're creating our own little division within our division to manage the homes in, in-house. And I was like, so first big life lesson of uh, in business, get it on paper. Oh, what a great lesson. I just want to go back. I mean, you said that your first business started, you looked at someone else and said, well, if they can do it, I can do it. And I think my question for you then is, do you think that entrepreneurship is restricted to a certain type of person or what is it that you need to actually go out and say, you know what, I can do this. I, I think, so I separate entrepreneurship from uh, being a business person um, yeah. because you can be a business person and you can buy a franchise and you can be yeah. very successful and run multiple businesses and multiple franchises and run them really well and do very well. But the difference between that and being an entrepreneur, in my opinion, is someone who actually goes out and decides, I'm going to solve a problem and I'm going to create a business that doesn't even exist, which happens all the time now, especially with the internet. I'm going to create a brand new business that doesn't even exist, or I'm going to create a new type of business that's a very, that's an iteration and an improvement on, a, on an existing business. And then there's no playbook, right? I don't have, I don't have a franchise manual, a franchise manual that I'm following on. I know exactly how to build a building and, and what, where stuff's got to go and how to price it and who to buy food from and like all that stuff that McDonald's gives you. You've got to go out and just like the wild, what literally like pioneers coming to North America hundreds of years ago and going West and they just have to figure it out on their own. That to me is an entrepreneur, somebody who just figures it out on their own by the seat of their pants day by day. I love that, man. And, and, and one of the things I struggle with 
is this new, uh, new breed of entrepreneurs that learn it in class. Nothing wrong with it. I feel like wherever you can get education, wherever you can get inspiration, awesome. But I love like meeting, you know, folks that are like, I got a new startup. I'm an entrepreneur, you know, I, and I went to three years to learn entrepreneurship. And a part of me is proud that like when I went into it at 20, it was not entrepreneurship. It was unemployment. Even though I'm my own man, it's either you had a job or you're unemployed in the eyes of the world. And today somebody could be an unemployed broke entrepreneur with a degree that says we've taught you how to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. You know, and so it's, it's really awesome to, to meet folks that are sort of making decisions coming There's up. There's tons and tons of programs now where you can exact, you can go and learn that stuff, all these regional innovation centers, and you can take courses and seminars and there's all sorts of stuff where you can learn it. And I've taken advantage of it. I've, I've really doubled down this time and thought, I don't need to figure out everything on my own, Rick, you know, reach out for help. Let's come back to that. But the difference is as much as you learn, the one thing they can't teach you that a, that a natural entrepreneur has is perseverance Ooh. because they can't teach you how to be able to keep getting knocked down and picking yourself back up again, day after day, week after week, month after month when it's going to get tough because you're just dedicated and driven to making sure this works. That's, that's the real difference between uh, uh, um, a natural entrepreneur and a, you know, a learned entrepreneur, I think is just the level of natural perseverance they've got in their own sort of um, personality. I could, I, I could do a TED talk someday on perseverance. I couldn't agree with you more. I want to circle back now to, to you said that. An entrepreneur looks at solving a problem, coming up with something innovative and things like that. So let's circle back to Green Apple Gives. Yeah. And what was that opportunity? What problem were you solving? How did this actually come about? So this all came about because my son does um, high-level sport karate. He's been on Team Canada three times now. Wow. Off clap for my son. Um, and so his, and it, it's, but like every other sport, people are probably, a lot of people out there will be familiar with, you know, rap hockey and academy soccer and stuff like that. It gets, starts to get very expensive. Um, his, his karate was no different. And so this, this competition team did a lot of fundraising to help offset the cost with parents. And so it was being involved in a lot of that stuff and, and seeing the stuff kind of stuff that was being done at the, the school as well. And I thought. There's a better way because you know, there's all these digital platforms out there that are doing things like cashback rewards for the individual and spare change roundups to help you sock money away, bits and pieces of time towards your retirement. And I thought that's great for the individual, but there's not really being done as a, on a collective sense. So it's being done for me, but there's not being done for we. Mm. And I thought, well, what if you could, instead of, instead of having you know, $20 being set aside a month towards my retirement, I was sending $20 to an organization that I'm supporting, or I'm, I'm buying a uh, hundred dollars worth of, uh, a dinner and I'm getting 5% cash back and instead of me getting the $5, the organization gets the five dollars mm -hmm. because, you know, getting, getting 20 or 30 or $50 a month, it's cool for me. But if there's a thousand of us doing it for an organization that starts to become some really meaningful amounts of money. 
that can make a big difference to that organization. So that's how it started. It was just, I had the light bulb moment being involved in the fundraising for my son. So as an entrepreneur, why did you feel you have to build versus, you know, this category is full of technology. Um, you, you could have found a partner company in another country, be the license holder here, take it to market. This build mindset is unique to entrepreneurs. You know, and as much as we tell ourselves, and I'm doing the same thing with my current education company, I'm never going to build another piece of software again. I'm never going to go down that path. And guess what we're doing? Building another piece of software. Uh, talk to me about, you know, how, how this thing is powered and, you know, to build or sort of, you know, build on. Well, it's, it's fair to say, so we're not building everything, right? Because of the nature of the complexity of, of the types of stuff that, you know, you you can do now with platforms that you're, you're typically building part of it and then using APIs to connect with other platforms that other people have built, right? I'm having, I'm not recreating a payment processing company when I need to do that part. I just connect to Stripe because they've already done that. And, and I don't need to, can, I don't have to build out the, uh, the card linking or the bank account linking stuff for, you know, monitoring trend, monitoring um, purchases through transaction rounding. Because there's already companies out there that'll sell me that service. So you can, you can buy up the little widgets that you need. And then the difference for, for us then becomes in, well, how does that, how does that get put together? And then how do you, how do you create a business out of that? And then how do you sell that? And then how do you, how do you, what's your customer service on that? What's your marketing messaging on that? And that's where the, the creation starts to come from. I've got a quick question for you just on the me. At the moment, I mean, you've entered quite a competitive space because there are a lot of providers out there that are providing a mechanism where you can make a donation or you can support fundraising to charities and to organizations. What is your USP? How, how are you differentiating yourself in the market? Um, there's not as much competition as you think because of the market size. So the market size, people think, oh, how big is fundraising? Well, fundraising in North America is a $500 billion market. It's, it's as big as ride sharing like Uber, um, short-term rentals like Airbnb and food wow. delivery like Skip the Dishes combined. It's, it's massive, but it's filled, it's, 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 it's riddled with uh, inefficiencies and it's been typically serviced by legacy process-driven competitors and, and a lot of old school, old-fashioned types of stuff like running events charity golf events, charity golf tournaments and charity, charity auctions and gala balls and all these, a lot of live events, which as we know from the past couple of years, you know, went by the wayside. And, and so in terms of digital competition within the space relative to the market, there's very little, but most of it has to do with most of the competition is still sort of, it's a digital solution to help organizations manage their old school events. Whereas what we're building is it's a new digital first solution where people are just, we sign up an organization, they invite their existing donor base to create accounts. They create accounts, link their credit cards on our platform, and then it's sort of set it and forget it. And we just, we can just monitor transactions after that to do spare change roundups. And if they shop at a brand partner, then they're in a cashback commission. And it all just happens in the background automatically. So it's all, it's very integrated. So the, 
the largest the largest generation is still the are still baby boomers. The second largest generation are millennials. Then there's Gen Z in between, and now or Gen X in between, and the Gen Z coming. And baby boomers still dominate fund donations to um, nonprofits, but they're still mailing in checks. Mm. And millennials and Gen Z are like, what's a check? <laughs> so if your organization isn't starting to make, um, isn't isn't trying to adopt and um, make some changes for what's coming down the road when that the old book, that old famous book, The Pig and the Python, um, gets left behind, then you're you're going to be in some trouble because eventually the generation is going to die off and those checks aren't going to get mailed in anymore. That's a good insight, man. Um, talking about this particular startup, I've got a two-part question. One lighter, I'm always curious how founders come up with names, you know? So I'd love for you to talk about, you know, Green Apple. Right. And number two to that is, um, you've been around the block with startups before. And so with the mentoring you received and some of the earlier, you know, companies you've done, what are the few things that, that you did differently at the launch of this one? that maybe gave you a different starting point or a different runway? So name, I struggled with this for a while. I had the light bulb moment in my head for months and, and that struggle, what am I going to call it? What is it? And, and then it hit me that, um, green apple went off in my head and it was because an apple is that very old traditional gift you would give to a teacher or a parishioner would sometimes bring to their pastor. Um, just this, you know, fruit, right? It's a gift and green for the, for the color of money, green for the color of the fact that it's, uh, um, it, it's, it's new, it's digital. So there's, there's no wasted paper and stuff going on. So it was just, it just sort of fit green apple. Um, and then in terms of. What am I doing differently? So I did do something very specific uh, and deliberate this time that was different from before. I had never used um, business advisors before mm. in, in previous businesses. And this time I said, I thought to myself, I'm going to change that this time because I'm trying to, um, I decided that I'm getting to a point in life um, that if I, if I want to hit a home run, let's make sure I give myself the best possible chance. And so I'm going to engage business advisors this time. And there's all sorts of programs and entities out there that like we talked on earlier, like the Ricks and, you know, the, the Communitex and the Marses and all those of the world now that didn't really exist before, um, that you can take advantage of. So why wouldn't I do that? And so now I've, and now as part of, um, getting the business going, I've actually, um, sought out and interviewed and, um, and then embraced and actually, you know, brought on actual official business advisors who, you know, got a small piece of the stock in exchange for uh, their ongoing help and advice. There's, a lot there's, of that's to do just, just networking, just, you know, if you bring these people in, it really opens up your sphere of yeah. where you can get to, which is how we met. It, it was Kumar is one of our advisors and he's the one that introduced us. Yeah. And if you're listening to this and you're a new startup, man, how many times have I advised startups and even seasoned founders getting the right advice at the right time is worth more than any stock you can retain and giving up a little bit to get more runway or more intelligence in the first year is 
Goals mind, man. Goals mind. I'm so glad you brought that point up. Tied to that is the network. The network has come up before as well. One of our previous guests also spoke about the importance of having or exploiting your network and, and having a large network, you know, because that's the thing. We, we assume that people aren't willing to give. But if you actually go and ask people for advice, you ask them for support, a lot more people are actually inclined to support you and help you just by virtue of the fact that you've asked. You know, so once again, that, that network side of things is really important. I think, Chris, what I want, uh, in your business, I mean, have you bootstrapped? Can I, can I jump in there with you? Yes, of course. It's a really good point because that, that, that's really, really interesting that you said that because um, I agree 100% that I'm, I'm surprised sometimes that reaching out to people and asking for help, that they're willing to do it. That's how I met Kumar. I saw him on a webinar that was run by an... I forget this, this startup program and he was on there helping. And I just reached out through LinkedIn cold and asked to connect and he, we got a meeting and that's how we connected. And then over the course of the better part of the year, over in a few meetings and follow-ups and he gave me some advice that, uh, that's how we, I got him on board as a, as an official advisor. And then connected to that, it was about two years ago, I realized I only had like a hundred and. 40 some odd people that I was connected to through LinkedIn. And I thought, and it started to dawn on me the power of the networking and that I really need to do a better job of connecting to people to expand my network. Cause you not only do you get that direct connection, but then you can get sort of the, their direct connection, get the second person connection that you can start trying to do, which is really important now in our fundraising phase. Cause now I'm asking people. Cause I realize I'm connected to somebody who's connected to somebody that I need to talk to about fundraising. Can you please introduce me to them? And without that expanded network of mine, I can't do that. So now I'm, I went from like 140 some odd to, um, you know, 800 or something now, but I was like, I need to get over that 500 where they just stopped counting it on LinkedIn. <laughs> it's an untapped tool. You know, Deanna and I talk about all the time, like you know, the next generation of entrepreneurs, they should be taking classes on, you know, in business school or in any university program or college, the power of LinkedIn and how to create networks. And these are all things that should be considered part of baseline education. Yeah. yeah. That, that, you know, that didn't exist when we were starting businesses 25 years ago. I still remember the phone books, man. I used to get the phone books, look up the companies, try to break through the receptionist walls. And then accidentally show up at events that they went to just to bump into them. Man, those hustles, these, this generation will never have to experience. I know. It takes away a little bit from the experience, isn't it? Because I think that, that, that ties, that, yeah, I think that ties into some of the myths and the perseverance that you were referring to earlier, Chris. You know, when, when you send someone a LinkedIn connection, they don't connect. You don't feel it the same way as when you actually pick up the phone and someone says, yeah, I don't want to talk to you type thing. You know, it's, it's quite a different experience, isn't it? Um, it's a different type of rejection, but you know. Yeah. So, so tell me, Chris, I mean, I think you've just referenced that slightly. I want to know this business, has it been bootstrapped or has it been built on investment or are you going to an investment phase? So we, we did us, we did a bit of a friends and family to sort of get us kickstarted at the beginning. Um, then, um, so it was it, the time. <laughs> In a weird way, the timing was so fortunate for us because the pandemic hit right around the time we were, we were actually talking with investors, but because of the pandemic, those doors got all slammed yeah. up immediately at the beginning of the pandemic. But 
a bunch of government programs got created to give you access to cash that didn't exist pre-pandemic, including one through uh, IRAP that was targeted at pre-revenue tech companies like us. So we were able to take advantage of some of those government programs to get some loans and government grants that got us through to this phase. And now we are, we've just recently opened a pre-seed round and we're raising a half a million dollars. Brilliant. And for a lot of people, I mean, there's a lot of businesses now in the tech space and a lot of businesses are dependent on investment. You know, for the new entrepreneurs out there, what are the things that you've learned as you're starting to go through that process? What, what are key to actually being a investable, being attractive to an investor, you know, and what are some of the pitfalls that you need to be aware of? Yeah, great question. Um, first, don't believe the hype. As much as you read about all of these people walked in with a, with a, with a PowerPoint presentation and got handed a check for $2 million. Yeah, it may be, but it's, it, they're few and far between. Most people are still having to grind out the investment process. And I can tell you that and we're still sitting in there because we're right just launching in market with our first customers to do, doing proof of concepts. Um, sales trumps everything. So if you can get sales, even just, you know, letters of intent and, and, and memorandums of understanding and some proof of concept trials and that kind of stuff is, is, is set you way ahead. Um, but you just have to grind it out. It's, it's just not easy. And, and back to the perseverance part, you know, you're going to have to talk to at least a hundred investors to find maybe five. So you're going to get 95 no's and five yeses. It's probably more like 200. You're going to get, you know, five to 10 yeses and 190 to 195 no's. And you just have to have really thick skin and realize that no doesn't mean you're a terrible person and they don't like you. It's just, they're just not into you. They just, if this doesn't fit their investment thesis, this isn't good timing for them, whatever. If you need to sort of learn to let it roll off your back, like water off a duck's back and just, and just move on and don't take it personal. That, and that's a learned skill. It, you really have, you really have to say no a few times and, and, and realize that it's a little depressing to hear because you're like, why, why, you know, like there was a fit here. You didn't like it. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with the business? What's wrong with the plan? And you just have to realize sometimes it's just a no. Yeah. And you just need one. That's right. You just one investor. <laughs> yeah, you just, you just need one and often, and because the one can often kickstart the others and you start to try to, it's all about, we really have to start to figure out, you need to start building momentum in the process, build up. There's a, there's a very succinct process that you can go through, which you can learn, which believe me, I've gone back and learned. It was one of the things that in previous businesses, I even struggled with was raising money. Um, but there's, it's a process you got to learn and then you just kind of sort of grind it up. I was raising money for the telecom company, UTN. So that was 25 years ago. This is pre-Facebook, right? There were no kids weren't being given big checks. We were raising $10 million. And, um, and I had so many times got told, love what you're doing. You're very credible, but we don't, we don't invest $10 million in 30 year olds. Oh my gosh. And after literally after 18 months to two years of this process, I had to literally go out and hire somebody who's my age now to be the president and for the face of the organization. And within months we raised the 10 million because now they were, they were investing in him instead of me. Oh, that burns, man. 
It's now it's the other way around. Now we don't. And it's a little bit for the Now you're almost better off than you are. Than <laughs> smart and figured it out. And they're like, yeah, we'll take a bet on you. Because uh, they know that you you can work 22 hours a day. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, looking at your bio, you are a poker enthusiast. You are a ex-superbike racer. You've yep. got a few interesting hobbies and, and interests and things like that. How has any of what you've learned in your social life with sports life and things like that translated into your business life? What have you taken from that and applied in your business life? Can you imagine negotiating him and his poker? No, the poker face, huh? Well, I guess it, it depends on what you're talking about. So the the race the racing is so hard to describe for people. So, you know, I raced professionally for for Yamaha and it's it's very hard to describe the speed at which you're traveling when you're when you're racing at that level. And um and it was like it was, you know, a mag and you're having to think because during the process of doing a race and you see your I always describe it as it's imagine of your there's strategy going on in terms of what you're doing. So it's kind of like chess because you're trying to plan it. Because sometimes you have to set up a pass to two and three corners ahead of time. And then you're reacting to what the people around you are doing. So it's kind of like tennis. So it's kind of like strategy of chess and tennis. And then throw that into bungee jumping or or jumping out of an airplane just for the sheer thrill, adrenaline rush. And that's what racing is like. It's, it's, uh, I used to joke, um, if you don't see God, you're not breaking late enough. I like that. a great way to put that into, into context, man. Right. Yeah. And then in terms of, in other terms of the poker, the poker was taught you a lot about, uh, a lot of patience, actually. Poker is not quite as, uh, it's not happening quite as fast as you see in the poker terms and TV because it's edited down to get content. In the real world, you could be sitting there literally folding every hand for an hour, literally doing nothing for an hour. I've done it. And then I've had, and then I've raised the hand. I have a guy re-raise me and I'm like, are you not paying attention? I have literally not paid a hand for an hour and now I'm raising and you're re-raising me? What do you think I'm holding? Like I have finally found a hand and you're testing me. So yeah, it's a, it's a lot of patience. There's a lot of patience and then reading people, trying to figure out. It's so it's a lot of, it's a lot of reading body language and a lot of reading situational, you know, would they be doing this? And it, it starts to get, it gets, you know, there's sort of first and it gets very deep, right? It's like, I know what I'm doing. I know what he's doing. Does he, or I know what I have. I think I know what he has. Does he know what I have? Does he think that I know what he has? It starts to get into this really deeper back and forth levels of the of logic in terms of the situation. That's you learn a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, look, I I played competitive basketball up to university, and when I meet other entrepreneurs and and you know I've got a little private investment club that I you know do some angel investing in, but I'm always curious on the on the you know non startup related lifestyle and I, what you said when you're competing. Uh, you learn certain skills that you don't even know is useful when you have your own business. And for me, you know, those years of basketball, um, while I didn't know what was going to be, you know, coming out of university, when I look back now, being calm with a clock running down, nobody can teach you that. No. Right? In in business, but I've experienced it with enough in-game emotion that I knew how to control everything from my breathing to my to my heartbeat. And those are the things you only learn in certain situations. And then 
it's the same emotion when you're dealing with it in business because your body doesn't know the difference. It's reacting to the same way with three seconds on the clock, you're down by two to I have a financial crisis or I have an HR crisis. And it was, in, it was important or incredible for me to recognize the similarities in, in the early days of being an entrepreneur. So then you, you probably had the same thing where you've realized and probably had people comment to you that you're very level in terms of the way you're handling. You're like, oh, something good happened in your life. And you're like, and you're just telling your wife, you know, oh, blah, blah, blah. And you're like, is that a good thing? Because you don't, you don't sound very happy. And I'm like, no, I'm happy. This is good. And yeah. then something bad happens. They're like, oh, is that bad? Because you don't seem that upset. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm not very happy. This is, this is bad. And yeah. but it's almost the same demeanor. And it's like, you just don't let yourself get too high for the good thefts. And so you don't let yourself get too low for the bad stuff and try to keep in the center. And, and then it's easier to roll through stuff, good and bad, because you know, whatever's good is going to turn bad and whatever's bad is going to turn good. You just kind of deal with it. The other thing that you probably understand is, um, is the giving back and the paying it forward that you learn through, um, that I learned through sports, my racing, especially, I mean, yeah, I had people help me get better, teach me little tricks and stuff and lines and, and setting up passing techniques and just setting up the suspension on a bike and stuff. And I used to go out to around the back of the paddock cause that's where all those little slow amateurs will all be, they'll be great cause they got there to the track last. So they'd be out at the back. I'd wander around and then introduce myself to somebody new that I'd never met before. And I could just shove on the seat of his, of his race bike. And I could tell it was, he'd need some setup help because he doesn't, I could just tell he didn't have it set up right. And I could talk him through it and I could make some changes with him. And it just felt like it felt good to me that I needed to do this sort of pay it, pay it forward because that's what people had done to me. And I feel the same way in business, which is, I mentioned it to Kumar when he had connected with me, but like, why did you do that? Like I was nobody. And, and he said, because I, I want to pay it forward and I, I want to make this a bit of a circular economy where people want to do that for each other. And so that's important to me that I'm doing the same thing too. That's so true. That is so true. I mean, that's what we need. You know, there's, there's more than enough wealth. There's more than enough opportunity to go around, you know, and if we can help other people to become wealthy, to create opportunities for themselves and things like that. Can you imagine how different we would be as a society? I mean, I, I think that is, it's almost, you know, you should have a code of ethics as an, as an entrepreneur and what should be written as, as rules of a director. You know, you have to be able to pass on your knowledge and further support humankind and the betterment of, of people, you know, it's, I think that's changing it. Yeah. yeah it, it's Dion is changing your mindset from it's life. Isn't a zero sum game. Yeah. It's a rising tide floats all boats. And if you can sort of change your mindset from it's a zero sum game and I need to get whatever I can get because the music's going to stop and I'll be left out of the chair to a rising tide floats all boats. If I help him, then he, then. And he helps her, her and she helps somebody else. And then they help me and we all benefit. So Chris, I'm going to ask questions. I mean, you have learned that through years of experience. If we look at this new generation of entrepreneurs, a lot of them are real young. You know, they, they, they in their twenties, some of them are even in their teens and things like that. How do we foster or how do we create an environment where they know inherently that that is what they should be doing with the businesses that they establish? Oh, well, I don't know. That's a good, I mean, geez. because I think that's the thing, you know, we, we, I mean, I'm 50 years old and things like that. You know, you've come through years of, of experience and you know that you only really advance when you give back and, and when you have this 
an open heart approach and an open end approach. Um, but, and, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the younger generation do have that, uh, you know, maybe they're coming to the business and they know that instinctively that's what they should be doing. I think that's probably true. And, and then therefore the only thing that we can do is just try to lead by example. You know, if it goes back to this, what we just talked about in terms of paying it forward, I think the best thing we can do is try to, is try to say, you know, I'm going to make myself available X amount of time for somebody that reaches out for help anonymously out of the blue or, or, or whatever, and just say, you know, it's not convenient, but I'm just going to try to make some time. And, you know, that doesn't mean you have to do it for everybody every time, but I, I just think it's important to have the mindset that you, you have to force yourself to sort of, you just have to force yourself to do it. And because if you can force yourself to do it, then other people will. And it gets back to a circular economy of helping others uh, succeed. And I love that term circular economy. I think uh, my hope and from what I'm seeing with some of the young folks that I've had exposure to, um, they already believe in this mindset because unlike our generation where our innovation only was in the geolocation of where we can sort of sell it, you know. Uh, now they're starting in a global environment. There's no such thing as a brand new idea anymore. Everything is built on top of something else. So for them to be collaborative, for them to be open is the only way they're going to build stuff of value. It's more natural to them too, because just the digital age they grew up in, especially with social networks, that I, I think it's more natural to the, to the younger generations anyway. It's something I just talked about, you know, like two years ago. I, my LinkedIn connections sucked and I had to actually work at it. But I think for the younger generations in general, that type of stuff is a little bit more natural because they were doing it from the beginning. Yeah. And I struggle with it. You know, it was this new education startup, you know, talking to young teachers and, and not having an NDA first and all of these things that I've been trained to, to sort of follow in my first businesses. Now it was totally different, but I've seen the results have been much faster. The scale hasn't been much faster. Once we sort of give them, you know, uh, access to your blueprints a little bit, um, getting into the last question. So you, you've now got green apple, the tech platform, you're out there building your thing. If we meet in 12 months from now, what are the things you're trying to accomplish and the differences you're hoping to make? 12 months from now? Well, uh, 12 months from now, I hope we've, um, we've closed or in the middle of actually closing a seed round. Remember I mentioned we're pre-seed round. So I'm hoping sort of in the second half of this year, we're probably opening a seed round. So I'm hoping we're probably involved in that at this point. And that at that point it's because as I mentioned earlier, is that sales trumps all, and you know we've had some real success and some real um, um, progress in terms of onboarding, you know, a couple hundred organizations and activating a number of thousands of their donors to the platform, and uh, we've really grown the uh, merchant rewards cashback marketplace, and we've been able to sort of start to automate some of the tools and um, uh, and and stuff that we can provide them in terms of the functionality. So but that's where I'd be at. That and maybe hopefully celebrating my son's karting championship. Nice. Um, before we finish it up, I lied. I had one more question. I meant to ask you earlier. Sorry, Dion. Um, we started the conversation with this idea of trajectory of life. I know you mentioned it saying 
at some point you had an accident and that created different reactions. And one of the things that I've been always personally curious about, and you know, I've had many life moments, man, born in India, being rushed to Singapore, exiting Singapore and new, new teenage, you know, start in Scarborough and in Toronto and all these things. I, I always think to myself in these moments where life has its own trajectory, do I flow? Do I fight? Is there a middle ground? And, and it spurred my interest, as you mentioned, sort of, you know, where your trajectory kind of happened. Because I had a whole plan. I wanted to be a psychologist. I had it all planned. And then the South Asian family angle and like life choices and, and, and finance issues put me on this other thing. And I fought it really hard. But thank God it, it worked out the way it did. But I'm always curious when people would define trajectory moments in their life that you can point to to go, do you, do you fight it? Do you flow with it? Is there a point of view? That's a complicated one. Um, I think you're, I, I think in the very short term, in terms of a shorter timeline, you can fight because you can, you can be, you could be struggling in terms of the direction you're trying to go and be up against, um, things that are trying to hold you back and you can fight against that over the longer term. I think you kind of have to flow with it. When you were talking, it reminded me that when I was younger, I didn't want to be a fall. I thought I, I, I wasn't sure if I, I thought I wanted to get married, but if I did, it was probably just going to be, you know, a thing where we just were childless and, you know, dinks, right? Double income, no kids. And, um, and then we got married and that was sort of where we were headed. And then suddenly she got pregnant unexpectedly. And so suddenly I was going to be a father that I didn't even think I wanted to be a father. And, and since then, I think I've been a much better father than I was expecting to be. And it was out of that, this idea was born. And so you can't, you, you can't plan that. That's just the kind of stuff that happens and you have to go with. So from that perspective, I think over the longer term, it's flow. I think Short term, you can fight for, for a direction you're trying to go, but longer term, you just, you just kind of have to go with the flow. No, I appreciate that. First, as, as the team said, you know, that was the last question. We're going to end off the session by me saying, I just want to thank you really much for your time. But I'm going to ask you to close off the session with one word that summarizes this journey of entrepreneurship that you've been on. Well, it's easy. Perseverance. Excellent. Awesome. Chris, thanks. We're going we're gonna to connect with you again in 12 months and we're going to see how you're getting on. Uh, but thank you for giving up your time today to chat to us. Thanks, Adish. I really appreciate the time. I, I really enjoyed myself. This was a lot of fun. Thank you so much. Recording stopped. We can be off the record. Man, that was a great answer on this trajectory. I've been struggling with that, uh, especially the last 12 months with, you know, once I sold the company, I was like, I'm done. I'm going to do the mentoring, advising thing. I'm done building my own things. And all that headache and then COVID opened up a new problem that I fell in love with. Now I'm building an education company, the most competitive, saturated, policy-driven market. Um, and I'm like, what am I doing? What trajectory am I? What, what issues am I trying to still resolve still that I need this to define me now? And I've been in this headspace, man. So when you brought that up, you know, it gave me a window to speak out loud. That's kind of the problem with us as an entrepreneur, right? You, you find yourself and you think I've, um, you, you think you've thought of or you've found a solution to, to, to a problem. You're like, well, if I don't, who, 
kind of, and then you kind of get sucked into it. You know, I got busting my birthday today. I had another new idea. And she's like, whoa, 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 focus. And I'm like, that doesn't even include the app I came up with. And she's like, no, no, just focus. I'm like, I'm not, I'm, I'm focused on Green Apple, but I think I may have to bring this to my buddy, Darren, see if he wants it. That is literally Dion and I conversation every other That's, that's the <laughs> It's the that's curse. It. It's absolutely the curse. I mean, I'm actually in the process of setting up a little group that all we do is we bounce ideas off each other. And they could be the crappiest, nonsensical ideas, but it's just to stay in the creative space, Chris. So, um, we had... I met, Darren was, um, what my first licensee when I had the WPT and, um, and then we, we, we became good friends after that. And then, so I was, I was getting myself out of the WPT. I was selling my Canada back to the U S and, um, I was like, we wanted to do something and I was, and so then we embarked on doing this, um, creating a company that did. Uh, it was an affiliate company that, um, advertised for iGaming companies in app though, because this is back around like 2012, 2013. And it was like, um, clearly things heading towards mobile and all of the big affiliate companies, all of the affiliate companies were all web-based because if you clicked on a link in a website, you could, you get redirected to iGaming.com and download their poker app or their sports betting or whatever it was, and they could connect you. And then you get every time they, they lose money and you, they earn the website earns money, then we get a cut in mobile. There was no way to do that. And, and so I, I gave this to this idea to Darren to figure out a way to do it in mobile and he managed to do it. So we started creating this company called poker minds that was going to be able to do an affiliate model for in-app mobile advertising. And I remember sitting in, um, or we had a meeting with the poker manager at triple eight and I'd said to him, um, Ari, um, how many other people are doing this? And he goes, what do you mean? He says, how many other people are doing this like in-app affiliate, um, advertising? He's like, nobody, you're it. Nobody else on the planet has figured this out. You're the only ones that have managed to figure this out. And I'm like, really? So at this point we were still doing some testing and testing was like, you know, we testing had, would be like a quarter of a million impressions would be like a small test. And so one day I woke up and I was checking the data on the test and instead of like, you know, 250,000 impressions, it was like 11,000. What the heck? So I called up this supply side partner and we, we combined like three different platforms and figured out a way to make them all work together. and. That's how we figured it out. So anyway, I called up this guy and I'm like, I don't understand what happened. I was like, the numbers are bubble. He goes, I don't know. Let me look into it. And he emails me the next day. He said, Mopub, which was the dominant mobile advertising company on the planet, turned off iGaming yesterday. They lumped it in with alcohol, tobacco, and firearms in their platform. And you can't advertise iGaming on their network anymore. Oh, and literally overnight, the business got burnt. Not. Just lit wow. a match. Sheets. So then you're talking about you guys talking together. So I used to bring all these other ideas to Darren after that, right? What do you think of this? No. It was like, I had to get him to think it was a decent idea. And so I remember the one he likes to tease me about that I still think is not the horriblest idea was a, um, because it exists in Vancouver is a 24 hour, um, traffic radio station. 
this is a no-brainer. It's just so, so it's like 680 news, but instead of news, just traffic. traffic in the GTA with interspliced pieces of maybe news or sports or weather. But it most of it is just giving you traffic reports around the GTA. And he was like, radio? No. He's generally right because you can get that on Waze. Perhaps and everything else. <laughs> then I brought him Green Apple and he was like, oh, it's, he might have something. No, that's awesome, man. Listen, if you ever want to radio station, if you want to ever grab a drink and, you know, join uh, Dion's party for a bunch of folks hanging around thinking about how to change the world next, man, it'd be great to have more people brainstorm. Year One is hosted by Dion Kloppers and Safish Bala and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It is engineered by BlueMex. For more Year One content subscribe where you get your podcasts and visit BlueMex.io to join us on Discord.